It made a big mistake in thinking that pri pri prioritising certain aspects of care. They're not looking holistically at how impactful a positive experience in apps and hospital settings with music, music and sport and education, that how, how much a foundation that can be for recovery. There's definitely been changes in funding and that there's a move more to evidence-based funding trying to make sure that if we're funding things, we're funding therapies that have got a proven research. One, one memorable case, they just said, OK, we're going to give you this money. You just tell us afterwards what you used it for, which was That's nice. kind of marvellous. It's yeah. the, the sort of fun ones. Welcome to Reclaiming Our Heritage, a mental health foundation podcast inspired by its two-year oral history project supported by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. The project's aim is to record and preserve the spoken testimonies of the mental health community between the 1950s and the early 2000s. The full interviews by these contributors and others are available in the Reclaiming Our Heritage archive on the Scottish Mental Health Arts Festival website. My name is Helena Rafai and in each episode I will explore themes and these will be further discussed by a professional guest. The Reclaiming Our Heritage project is funded by a number of donors, including an Our Heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund. On this podcast, we'll be exploring the importance of funding creativity for mental health and hearing from different voices on this theme from the Reclaiming Our Heritage Archive. We'll also be exploring themes of creativity in the arts, because the thing that ties all these voices together is their involvement in mental health in the arts. Our expert on this episode is David Cutler. Pleased to meet you. Hello. Very nice to be on the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for being with us. So um, could you please introduce yourself and tell us what it is that you do? Yes, you, you probably saw me uh, reacting against that word uh, expert. It's not normally one I use about myself, but um, I am very interested in arts and mental health. And that's been developing over the last couple of years in my role as the director of the Bering Foundation. We're a grant making charity that operates across the UK. And one of the things that we do is fund the arts. And since uh, 2020, we've been funding creative activity with people with mental health problems. And that's brought me into contact with lots of arts organisations which are working uh, in this area and trying to think through the pressures on them, particularly around funding, but many other things too. Yeah, and it's an incredible amount of work. And you'd written a, a report as well, well, creatively minded, the initial mapping study of participatory arts and mental health activity in the UK. I just want you to briefly talk about that, if that's okay. With pleasure. Because the area of creativity and people with mental health problems was a new one for us at the Bering Foundation, and particularly for me. I was very, very aware of how little I knew about the subject. I felt I had to educate myself. And the best way of doing that was just talking to lots and lots of people 
uh, in the field. So to write that, I probably spoke to between 50 and 100, mainly arts organisations, but also people with more clinical um, approaches to mental health. I said to myself, this is very, very complicated. How can I draw a bit of a picture? So I looked at the sorts of arts organisations that are working in the field, and you can divide those up in different ways, but you've got a lot of specialist arts organisations. Then you've got organisations which we call participatory arts organisations, which are interested in working in the community, working in a very co-production sort of way, but with lots of different people. So a really complicated picture, and it's complicated for everybody. It's complicated for the NHS organisations working with those arts organisations. It's complicated for participants to work their way through. But also there's a richness in different approaches. And I think one of the main things that I found and I've found since, and I'm continuing to talk about this from from the arts side of uh, things, which is not the only perspective, a surprisingly large number of arts organisations working in this field, but very fragile, often extremely small, desperately low amounts of uh, budget, very few staff working from hand to mouth, always looking for the next grant. So Definitely. And some of the things that you've said there will, they will come up in some of the questions that, that I will be asking. So this podcast is focusing on the importance of funding creativity for, for mental health. So it'd be a great point now to explore some of the archived voices that we have and, and talk about the theme further. So I want to start off with Brian, who is from Beath in Ayrshire and worked as a labourer and then went into mental health nursing, where he's been working with Lavendale Hospital for 39 years and thousands of patients back around 40 years ago, consisting of elderly, long-term and chronically ill, were part of that um, hospital. He's witnessed quite a few changes, including introduction of art therapy, and he started to bring his own interests into his job and started a writing group and has realised how important art can be when it comes to treatment. Have you always worked in the west of Scotland? Yes. Is there any dis- difference between what you hear from colleagues that maybe work in different parts of the country? Or I don't hear many people working on the same basis that we do. Not very many at all. It used to be uh, uh, recreational therapy centres in every hospital and stuff like that. They totally annihilated them. I just fought like hell keepers and uh, made a good case for it. And we established good standards of care and standards of care delivery. So we've retained and grown her. A resource because of that, you know, and the, and the way that we interact with community partners and are constantly reevaluating our programme and changing and uh, updating. Keeping the core values the same, but always being responsive to change, you know. So, why do you think that is that over the past few years they've pulled back, like Scotland has pulled back on stuff like, like funding well, they, for things like they, that? They see they don't, they, they're prioritising. They made a big mistake in thinking that prioritising certain aspects of care. They're not looking they're not looking holistically at how impactful a positive experience in arts and hospital settings with music or music and sport and education that how how much a foundation that can be for recovery and wellness. It's it's to me it's like dead obvious. I mean I've been doing this for thirty nine years. The most 
obvious thing is people uh, enjoying treatment and getting more benefit from it in a sense of position or connection with others and feeling confidence to try things and like a stage response to going back to their mainstream life if you like so if all you're doing is sitting in a hospital ward and getting in-reach treatments in there and getting discharged what have you learned you're in hospital wards the wee community centre vibe happening within your the resource people have to get their shoes on and their jackets on and go out and attend that resource that's a similar kind of thing as to getting your jacket on to go to the shop or go to uh, work or whatever you know you're encouraging the and people think that people are better within contained environments like locked wards or uh, secure you know secure envi- acute environments and the difference when they actually have to go and engage with people in a different area with people that they're not familiar with for the last six or seven weeks and it, they don't realise that how, how, how great a thing that is to evaluate people's real sense of recovery or real sense of wellness that if, they, if they're able to come from here to here and do something like an art group or uh, a tai chi group or a learning for all group within this environment with total strangers that that's preparing you for you know, as, you know it's, stay, it's having a stage response to discharge and a gradual uh, it's a foundation for your recovery you know it's dead obvious <laughs> how do you think then attitudes have changed for recreational therapy or do you think they've stayed the same in that sense well creative therapies in general um, there's a lot of outside agencies or artists who are now in reaching into uh, resources but I, I genuinely believe that when uh, you have core groups of members of staff who are uh, part of a team delivering a service and have those skills like art, uh, music uh, football, swimming you know, creative uh, person centred uh, activities then you're giving a, you're, you're a centre for excellence then you know uh, whereas if you're just dropping them for 12 weeks and 12 weeks and 12 weeks it's a bit like the poverty safari things that, uh, that you know you've got artists coming in and doing something with the patients and then leaving mm-hmm. whereas if you're working with the patients day to day you've got a different kind of interpersonal relationship I'm not saying that's better for me you have core, if you have core people artists in the group and bring in artists where you have help facilitate and uh, you, you have much more uh, expansive results, you know, there'll be a lot more, it'll be a lot more positive uh, rather than just having somebody drop in. Because they have no sense of connection. They quickly get a sense of connection when the staff that they meet my, when they meet my staff and we're like, hey, okay, what do you want to do? Yeah, what can we do to help? And that, that and it's, been, it's given them a better experience as well and building... Uh, practitioners' uh, abilities and responses, and they can now go on to the next thing they're doing mm-hmm. as well, you know. So, I think that joint working is really essential, mm. not just to, not just to drop in, you yeah. know, see the patients and leave, mm-hmm. you know, to a more honest kind of relationship with yeah. community apps. What I want to start off with is by asking you, in your experience, and this is a, a kind of more of a general question, how competitive can it be to gain funding for creative arts projects? Uh, I'm trying to think of a big enough word. It's incredibly competitive. I don't think it's the only area where it's incredibly competitive. And we've funded over the years in different areas. 
And I've never seen any aspect of community arts where it is not uh, under huge pressure to get uh to get funding but we worry constantly when we're putting up funding about how to reduce the amount of effort that people put into those applications because we know that we're never ever going to be able to remotely meet the need so when we have open competitions it can easily be the case that four out of five, or even nine out of 10 organisations don't get um, funding. People ask us for feedback, and it's another thing I really struggle with, because it's very, very comparative between different strengths. It's not a science. It's not in any way straightforward. But I can see how people want that information to try and do um, better. For our sort of funding, which is arts funding, we are interested in quality. We're particularly interested in how good you are at engaging participants. That's really what we're concerned about. But when it comes to, obviously, arts organisations can very, very likely to be looking for funding from health sources. And then you get into very tricky, tough issues about measuring impact and evidence. I think there's actually quite additional specific issues when it comes to arts and health, which is that on the health side, arts organisations are, no matter how talented, uh, going to have a big challenge in producing the sort of evidence that in some ways quite reasonably health funders are going to ask for. Yeah, and that that kind of actually works into my next question. Brian says that funding has been pulled back and there's perhaps not enough focus by looking holistically at how positive the approach can be when it comes to the arts. Um, And I was going to ask, I don't know if it kind of maybe ties in with your first answer, but is it the case of there needs to be more evidence-based research for this? Or is it because there's a difference in priorities when it comes to care? I think a bit of both, Alina. I think that it is not unreasonable that health organisations that are looking at, you know, there's a limited amount of money. We all know these things. Do I give this uh, to to this uh, sort of funding or do I give it to that sort of funding? There's only X amount I give it to either. I'm not surprised that they're looking for evidence. But I do think Brian's quite right that by not exactly playing off is the wrong phrase, but by having to look in that competitive way, perhaps you're missing the larger picture about how different sorts of support holistically, in his words, build up together. And I think that's a really important point that is made. Brian also talks about people dropping in and out to do projects where it'd be more beneficial to have core staff delivering creativity. How much of a stigma do you think that there still is surrounding the arts being a full-time role for people in these settings? My word, I found what he said really, really thought-provoking. On that specific issue about stigma, if I understand it correctly, certainly regarding artists themselves, I don't think there's any stigma, inhibition, 
lack of interest, enthusiasm, passion, you name it, for working creatively with people with mental health problems. And let's not forget, Brian used that word poverty safari, which really made me think. Let's not assume that those artists that are going into those settings don't have mental health problems themselves. A lot of the artists I speak to, it's in absolutely nowhere a requirement on our part. But as you get to know people, some people will say, I'm doing this. I'm an artist who's interested in this field. But in my experience, a lot more artists, when you get to know them and start talking to them, they will raise this in a in a much less direct way. I don't think we should assume too much about the motivations. Poverty Safari basically gives, gives the idea of a, a very voyeuristic approach. I hope that's very, very rare. I mean, it, it would be very uncomfortable. I think he's making a really interesting point about the difference between being an artist who is full-time in a setting. But I do think there is also value um, both to the artists in working in different settings. I think there's value in both, and it's all about attitude. I meet an awful lot of artists who, in my view, are desperately concerned about participatory methods, co-production, listening to uh, people wherever they go, if that's a a psychiatric ward or any other uh, location. And I think they can be very skilled in that. I'm sure Brian's got a point that I think it would be better to have more full-time, permanently-based artists. But I think there is also value in artists with new experience and the right attitudes. Yeah, I totally agree. I want to move on to our next testimony, and it's from Anne, who was uh, born in 1961 and started working in the health service as an occupational therapist in 1982, moved to Glasgow by 1984, where she worked in a range of different hospitals and day hospitals until around 1994, and then moved into service management. Um, She left that in 2000 to go and work in a new team that was being set up to bring psychological therapy to people in primary care. She's now the head of program for psychological therapies for adult mental health at NHS Education for Scotland. Um, when you were speaking about sort of funding and cuts, it did make me wonder, could you maybe speak about who were the main sort of funders of your, well, work throughout your career, really? Uh, some volunteer organisations are very good at funding art projects uh, like projectability and there's also sometimes endowment funds within hospitals where we would be able to access endowment funds that have been bequeathed to the mental health services and we would be able to use these for various different projects. I think that's the main sources of funding. I don't think we've ever done any fundraising to do it. We've never any of our fundraising activities have usually been to try and persuade service managers to persuade <laughs> to part with the cash in the in the system. When I've put in a really good proposal, it's it's actually gained support. There wasn't too many places times when it got knocked back because the majority of the service managers that I worked with also valued and also appreciated that the environment needed to be as good a place really as it, as it could be. 
there's definitely been changes in funding and that there's um, I moved more to evidence-based funding, trying to make sure that if we're funding things, we're funding therapies that have got a proven research, that have got a good efficacy, that have got a good level of efficacy, efficacy. They, 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 they actually do what they say they're doing. You know, they, if they're therapeutic, that they do give positive outcomes to people with mental health problems. And I think that's totally okay. I'm quite okay with that. I don't particularly want to be offering somebody a therapy that isn't effective. <laughs> um, but at the same time, uh, sometimes the therapies that have got a good evidence base are the ones that have had good resources behind them. And other therapies that we don't have an evidence base for, there's been no resource, no investment in them. So I think that's one of the biggest paradigm shifts that I've noticed over the years is moving more and more towards an evidence-based world and funding following that. And I think that that, that, that has meant, because there isn't such a great evidence base for the arts, making a difference to someone's health, then that's meant, I think, sometimes that funding isn't getting put into the arts in the way it should be, I don't think. I suppose I was, I was wanting to know about people's kind of initial reactions to an art-based or creative-based kind of plan for their recovery. Quite a lot of people um, would be re- re- reluctant, <laughs> uh, if you were to be, I suppose, you know, any group of people, if you had a group of 10 people, a third of them would probably be eager embracers of an idea and would be happy to try it out. A third would probably feel quite reluctant. A group in the middle would be quite neutral. But I think um, once somebody had been coming along to the day hospital that I worked in for quite a period of time, they would know that we would do this. We, we would we would use art a lot. So um, they wouldn't be at all surprised to find themselves scooped up into the fireplace project, for example, or if we were if it was summertime and we were suggesting, do you want to design your own T-shirts? They would be quite happy to... Um, give it a go once you discussed it with them and went through what was involved and were clear about the sort of supports that they were going to get. So they would then be quite excited and quite interested. I think people at the start, they might have been a bit apprehensive. Maybe I think maybe that's maybe a better word because it's usually all based on ideas that are not quite correct. If people don't think they're very good at something, they might be less likely to try it out. And when, if they don't try it out, they don't find out how much they're going to really, how, how much they enjoy it. So I think quite a lot of the job sometimes in persuading people that it's the fun taking part in it that's important. Anne also refers to evidence-based funding and proven research. You've already spoken briefly about this in the beginning um, or touched on this subject In your experience, have you perhaps seen some organisations who are doing great work have had to cease because they're trying to experiment with new methods and haven't been able to gain a sustainable resource to do so? The best way of answering that question is the organisations that I see often seek to experiment in new ways, whether that's in new geographical areas whether it's new art forms. It's quite hard to think of things that are genuinely innovative in the sense of no one's ever tried to work in this way before with with someone, for instance, with a a mental health problem because there is so much activity. My experience is that organisations are very innovative, adaptable and flexible. They survive amazingly on incredibly little resource 
but I'm sure all of them will have so many stories of projects or innovations that they wanted to undertake, which they haven't been able to, and they've they've had to stick with established forms of funding. I don't know if you would agree with this. Um, And obviously what you're saying there is that, especially, I totally agree in terms of innovation. Do you sometimes think that maybe it's because everyone is does think that their idea is innovative or it's challenging or it's bringing something new, but it's it's more a lack of cohesion and communication between everyone together and perhaps we should bring them more together in that sense? I would certainly agree with you. I think there's a number of different ways of looking at this. So one issue is, by and large, the arts organisations that that I meet to generalise they will know a few other arts organisations in their local area. They'll be very, very deeply embedded in their local area. They'll know everything about their community, be hugely expert. Um, But they are so desperately short of time and desperately stretched just delivering. If they had more time and capacity, I think it would be more about peer-to-peer support. I mean, if we didn't have this hideously competitive um, system that we have for all sorts of funding, but certainly the arts funding, and if people had more time and breath, I'm absolutely sure that they would find, and they frequently tell me, that they would find an awful lot of um, mutual support in having better uh, contact. But I think that then happens at all levels. It happens between art forms, it happens at a regional level where people don't know each other, it happens at a national level where it's very hard to get uh, a picture. I couldn't begin to say about about Scotland or, or any other nation about what's missing because the picture is so unclear and we have been trying in our very small, limited way to increasingly join people up. There is, for instance, in uh, Scotland, a very good arts and health network, and that's increasingly happening in all the countries. But it's an uphill battle for those organisations to do that. And I suppose the final thing I'll say, and these things can be inhibiting or positive, but looking at the national level, and I think I'm right in in saying this about Scotland, there is not much in the way of a framework at policy level. Um, So I'm not aware of national policies that talk about the value of creativity in mental health treatments. I apologise if if I've got that wrong, but I don't think they exist. And that's true of other countries too. It's absolutely not just Scotland. Where there are frameworks they are so general and so vague that it doesn't really give people anything to hold on to. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, yeah, there, there definitely feels like a disconnect up here, um, I have to say, just from, from personal experience. Anne talks about a level of reluctance there from people's initial reactions with using arts and creativity as a plan for recovery. Um, do you feel that this is a societal thing and the arts needs to be promoted and normalised more within these settings? Yes, would be my basic answer. I think a third, a third, a third isn't, isn't that bad, actually. I think that it is a much bigger 
issue, which is often called um, everyday creativity, that of course every human being that's ever breathed is creative. Um, we can't not be creative. And I think pretty much every child that goes through primary school is just constantly using the arts. And then for many of us, that becomes a bit of a distant memory or perhaps something that we appreciate others do and think that musician, that actor's uh, tremendous, but it's not part of our own lives. And um, there's all sorts of issues around that. There is there is what is described as art. So again, I think it's impossible to imagine any adult that isn't really watching films, TV, into dramas, enjoying music in some way, shape or form. But we don't describe that as our lives. There is this strange lack of recognition, I think not only at a national policy level, but in ourselves, that we're sort of a bit distanced from our own creativity. And, that, and that's unhelpful. It, it makes it, for instance, the very, very real class issues around the arts, where, as I've just said, absolutely everybody uh, has an experience of creativity in the arts. But if you're from a poorer background, you may well feel that it is much more about them uh, than it than it is about you. But there are many aspects to that. Yeah, I love what you say there, um, just about the way it factors into our lives now. And I just think the the recognition, there just seems to be this perception that art is, is inaccessible. You have to be good at art to do it. And we're just literally, we're doing it every day without realising I want to move on to the, the final testimony, and it's um, Keith, who was born in Hemel Hempstead and now based in Inverness since 2006, and started working in IT, um, and then in 2008 moved into health policy, and also has been involved in Samaritans for around 25 years. Um, his role focuses on mental health, well-being and mental health improvement, and in particular, suicide prevention. And he's been involved with Mental Health Arts Festival since 2009 and set up a social enterprise called Creativity and Care, where they use creative process to engage with people in all sorts of ways and for all sorts of reasons, such as dementia care, mental well-being and community cohesion, plus a lot more. <music> setting up a social mm. enterprise in that way has that had its mm. challenges well, it certainly has its challenges um funding is is, is, is always the big challenge uh, we're largely grant funded so we get funded to put programs on uh and we occasionally get commissioned to run courses about using the creativity uh, for well-being or uh, creative dementia care courses, that sort of thing. Um, but it's difficult to fundraise for something like that to the general public because we're not a charity, we're, mm -hmm. we're a limited company and a social enterprise. Um, so this, all the core funding we need to keep the organisation going is really difficult to find. And we, we sort of lurch from uh, one financial crisis to the next, really, um, and hoping along the way to be able to deliver worthwhile programmes, which, I mean, the feedback we get is fantastic. So we know that we're hitting the spot with quite a lot of people. Yeah. 
Where does your funding come from? Um, a variety of sources. Um, some mental health charities like Birchwood Highland, for example, commission us to do work with their um, their beneficiaries. Uh, we get some from High Life Highland, which is a, um, a sort of arm's length organisation which does the uh, the leisure and community education work for Highland Council. We get commissioned for programmes through them. We had some work through NHS Highland and we're, we're hopeful of getting more and that's working with their care home staff. We also run courses, you know, to the public, so we advertise them and people pay for places on our creative dementia care courses as well. So uh, a variety of sources. So occasionally we'll get a trust funding um, we, that seems to reach us rather than us reaching it. Our, our reputation sort of gets out there and people who are interested in sort of philanthropic organisations who are interested in supporting that kind of work occasionally get in touch with us. And uh, I mean, in one, one memorable case, they just said, OK, we're going to give you this money. You just tell us afterwards what you used it for, <laughs> which was That's nice. kind of marvellous. It's yeah. the sort of fun ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, just to get a bit of an idea of how you go about, um, you know, initiating a project and targeting um, groups, you know, to, to participants to take part. Obviously, they're quite, I've, I've looked on your website and they're quite different, the, the, the types of projects that you're doing. But um, do you kind of start off with a, a, an idea? How do, where do the ideas come from? Yeah, we start off not so much with an idea, but with a with a, a need that we've identified, or an, or somebody who's come to us with a need. We we try to do is work with people and help them to generate their own ideas about what they want to achieve. So we might um, an example might be um, wanting to to work with uh, residents of a couple of care homes who wanted to use creativity to engage with their communities. Um, and that's, that's, that's where we started from. So what we, we, we do a little bit of work to sort of build the trust and the empathy with people and then help them to identify the theme that they want to use. I mean, in one project, for example, it was uh, uh, a couple of care homes in, in Invergordon and they ended up doing some work looking at some of the history of the town, uh, how it's grown over the, over the decades and you know, going back about 100 years. And we ended up putting on a uh, performance. Um, the, the first performance was actually at Eden Court, which was quite a memorable evening. Um, you know, people actually getting up on stage and, and in a place where they'll see professional shows being put on. Uh, and we then put the you know, took the show number of community settings around and about as well, and it was really about them identifying a the story they wanted to tell, and then helping them to tell it creatively, and a long way engaging them in you know, the, you know, the original you know, purpose was to engage them with the community and create these kind of bonds with the community. Uh, and you know, we have participants who are residents in the home, some people with dementia, some people with quite advanced dementia, and just you know, members of the community who are interested in the project and joined in. And they, I mean, when you, when you watch the performance at you know, the end product, you wouldn't have known who was who. 
you know, which which people were from which background, and uh, that was that was really empowering for everybody concerned. Yeah, I can imagine. That sounds amazing. Keith talks there about it being more of a need as opposed to an idea to initiate a project. How have you seen needs change in your experience? And do you have any thoughts on how this is perhaps going to look in the future? All my words, that's uh, that's one I'm struggling with. What's an interesting question. I mean, I'm going to answer this in a couple of ways, Helena, but to think it's a very high level. It's clear to me that as a society, we change and pay greater attention to areas of need as society develops. So, for instance, my organisation, the Bering Foundation, in 2010, started funding work about creativity, what we call creative ageing. The sort of thing that Keith was talking about, people living with dementia. And in those 10 years, I believe I saw a, a huge increase in interest in arts organisations, whether they're very specialist like Keith or actually, you know, so many big arts organisations in Scotland, for instance, you know, the National Galleries, big theatre companies, the I think it was the Lyceum in Edinburgh. We funded a specialist organisation called Luminate uh, in, uh, in Scotland. Real growth. And I think, though we're not there yet, there's going to be a lot of changes in creativity with people with mental health problems. And I think part of that is going is a societal change people with mental health problems is is us not them that it's so common and there are many many different aspects to this but so many of us are likely to uh, to experience either in our family or personally that I think it's going to feel much more inclusive rather than there's this thing over here which is uh, is mental health problems and there's different things happening in each nation of the UK, but there's something happening everywhere that is going to have to interact with the NHS. And that's complex and challenging for everybody because it, it, it's such an amazingly big, difficult, important organisation. So I think those things are going to change. And I think actually in a very positive way. This is a big question. If the arts was not funded to aid recovery and help with mental health, what impact would that have? So if there was no arts funding? None. I've never been asked that question before. One way of answering it is that, in my experience, most of the funding for arts and mental health comes from arts funders, not from health funders. I'm not taking a, a sort of overly critical view about that because I can see how that's that's worked in the way it is. But if you were to say, well, if our type of funding withdrew, well, there wouldn't be that many arts organisations that I'm aware of that would survive that. I'm thinking quite hard about that. I mean, they, they could go to money for the public, but... And also I see the sorts of arts organisations that I see that, that are interested in arts funders like us, but, but it would be absolutely 
devastating to, to the funded arts world if if that happened. I think that there is absolutely no prospect of that because my experience is that arts funders are becoming more interested in mental health and health more generally and more aware of that and more aware of our responsibilities. But we certainly would love to engage more with health funders and think about how we work this through together. And arts funders like arts organisations, perhaps more than arts organisations, uh, you know, I feel very, very ill-equipped when I'm talking to an art a health funder. They look at things very differently. They have different challenges. They have a different environment. So I think we've all got to work better about working together. And I can see that happening. I want to end with a personal question, if you don't mind. Um, and I want to ask, what satisfaction do you get from the, the role that you play in this sector? <laughs> <laughs> Right. Well, I'm going to be very honest because you'd want that. An awful lot less satisfaction than I used to because I spend my day staring at this screen. (laughs) Uh, So always the greatest satisfaction for me uh, was being out and about and meeting people and talking to people. And for instance, I was going to see an arts organisation Uh, that's working in my local psychiatric hospital in West London with absolutely amazing uh, artists uh, working on uh, psychiatric wards. To me, that is a completely and utterly different experience. So I'm hoping my satisfaction goes up enormously uh, in this year. I, I think the other thing is I do feel a bit overwhelmed. Personally, there's enormous joy visiting arts organisations, meeting uh, participants. You know, it's just fantastic sitting next to someone in a creative writing group, just chatting away, hearing their story, beginning to to learn about them. And I hope that's not viristic because I don't think you can understand where people are coming from until you have those very normalised sitting next to each other someone's doing one task someone's doing another chats um so i'm looking forward to an awful lot more of those and learning a lot more because of it this is the last episode of our series and a fitting way to finish in that funding is essential to the future of arts and mental health Brian, Anne and Keith have almost immeasurable experience between them all when it comes to their work within communities. It's thanks to them and others at the helm of projects, organisations and charities that recognise the work that needs to be done in order to push forward, help and engage people. Brian's criticism about mistakes with funding being pulled back due to funders not viewing care from a holistic approach is something that has been a theme throughout this series from guests and testimonies, but not only from a funding perspective. Holistic in its basic term is to look at the whole person and not just their mental health needs. And Brian's comments on looking at various aspects that incorporate everyday tasks is something to be recognised. And it's forward-thinking approaches like this that combine the arts, mental health and recovery. Anne shines a light in realistic summaries when it comes to evidence-based funding. And this has been a provocative subject for some in this series. Anne's explanation surrounding the resources that are available in these fields is something of note. And it's a point that also arose in episode four of this podcast looking at mental health over generations. 
perhaps it's that investment in funding attributing to alternative therapies that could be considered. One of Keith's interesting comments mentioned how one body gave funding, but they didn't have to go into detail about what the funding was for. The funding process can be an exhaustive and inaccessible one for many. Understandably, there has to be a measure in place to prevent falseness and ill practice, but for proven bodies, could this perhaps be considered more often? Finally, our guest David's perspective is crucial in this conversation. There are many myths and misunderstandings when it comes to funding and perhaps more so when it comes to funding in the arts and mental health. His clarity around the Bering Foundation's approach and perspective, but also his personal comments offer hope within this subject. Maybe one of the biggest takeaways is that there is an abundance of people working towards a greater goal, but perhaps the structure of funding and how we fund people needs to be looked at. Could we offer funding that looks at connecting people more? Could that funding consider peer-to-peer support as a mission going forward? Could we increase funding for longer-term research within the arts and mental health to create sustainability? This is a far-reaching and perhaps never-ending discussion, but it's thanks to the testimonies over this series that these provocations have started. This podcast has been presented, produced and edited by me, Helena Rafai, for the Mental Health Foundation, with music by Lucy Parnell. The Reclaiming Our Heritage project is funded by a number of donors, including an Our Heritage grant from the National Lottery Heritage Fund.